Well, Seth took half my time, so I'm glad for that. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I'll explain why I said that in a moment. Yeah, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 21. Luke, chapter 21, we'll begin reading in verse uh, 3. We're turning to a section in Scripture that theologians refer to as the Olivet Discourse, or as Layman put it, the talk at Olive Garden. I thought that was funny. Now, before I teach this, uh, teach, teach what Jesus is saying here, what I think Jesus is saying here, before I get into that, it's probably a good time, if, if for nothing else, for the sake of my own job security, to remind you that on secondary matters, we're free to reach different conclusions. And if we've done our homework and we've, with humility, tried to understand a particular text and we walk away disagreeing with other people about what that text means, then we are bound by integrity to commit to what we believe the text means. As the Presbyterian told the Pentecostal, it's okay, you worship God in your way, and I will worship God in his. Uh, So I wouldn't get up here and share from God's word if I wasn't sure this is what God meant in God's word, but I will tell you that the talk in the Olive Garden is a complicated and therefore controversial one. I'm going to share with you an interpretation of this text that you may have not heard before, but I assure you that I'm not sharing with you an interpretation that I made up. In fact, this is a quite old understanding of this passage. In fact, it's only in recent days that I would have to give the uh, disclaimer that some of you may not have heard this particular interpretation of Luke 21 or the Olivet Discourse. 150 years ago, everybody would have agreed with the, rep- the representation, or, or most everybody ha- would have agreed, all the godly people would have agreed <laughs> with uh, the interpretation I'll be putting forth. But it's actually older than 150 years ago. It's even older than John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards, name drop, uh, who believe the same things I'll teach you today. Uh, it, it, actually, uh, it actually goes all the way back to 66 AD. The first understanding of this text that I'll be talking about today goes all the way back to 66 AD. 66 A.D. is a date that might stick out in your head. One that might be more familiar is 70 A.D. From 66 to 70 A.D., the Roman armies surrounded the city of Jerusalem and ultimately besieged the city, creating, honestly, what was at the time the most devastating, the most, the greatest tribulation, one might say, known to the world at that time. Now, leading up, after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, ascended, Jerusalem started really just becoming unhinged. There was massive amounts of infighting between various leaders who would, who would honestly, they would rise up and fall out of nowhere like mushrooms on a dead log. There were people rising up every day saying they were the ones that were going to bring freedom to Israel, restore the kingdom of Israel. And sure enough, someone else would rise up the next day, kill that guy, and so on and so forth. There was a massive amount of infighting amongst the Jews after Jesus left the scene. Add on top of that, a famine that occurred in the 40s. Uh, There was a massive famine, and it's actually discussed in the scriptures, and Acts 11 is prophesied and later comes to pass. So not only is there violence in the streets pretty much every day, like, like literally like Jewish gang wars, you know, in the streets of Jerusalem, there's a massive famine that occurs, and the heat just keeps getting turned up on the, on the tribulation, on the pain in this great city. Um, 
those 20 years went, came and went, and eventually a, a couple of leaders, a couple of zealots uh, stood up and really did their best to overthrow Roman influence in the city. And this happened in 66 AD. The Romans said, that's enough. We don't want any more to do with these Jewish people causing all this trouble. And they finally decided to turn up the heat all the way and take the city. They didn't want to destroy the city. They wanted to end the Judean rule of the city. Specifically, they wanted to offer sacrifices to Caesar on the altar in the temple. During this period of time, when Rome besieged the city of Jerusalem, just terrible, terrible things happened. A witness to the siege said, Around the altar, the heads of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered to the bottom. The whole Jerusalem was full of dead bodies until... It ran out of food, and then those dead bodies quickly disappeared into kitchens. This was a terrible, terrible moment in world history. People had not seen this degree of suffering up to this point. Another account from the same witness. As the construction of the embankments precedes the Roman capture, uh, escape people escape from the city, as many as 500 a day. So a siege is essentially the idea that we're going to choke out a city. We're not going to give them any access to food or water. We're not going to let them escape. We're going to just make them sit there and die or kill each other. And that's what the Romans are doing. As many as 500 people are escaping from the city every day. Prisoners, when they're caught escaping, are tortured, killed, then crucified before the walls to intimidate the populace. Titus, the general in charge of the siege, is saddened by the necessity of the crucifixions but sees their need nonetheless. And it was said that there were so great a number of crucifixions that they ran out of space to put crosses and eventually ran out of wood to build crosses. So imagine a city besieged over four years, starved to the point of cannibalism, having already endured a great famine, fighting within and without, and outside the city walls, Everywhere you can see are crosses. Yet missing from all of this tragedy were the city's many Christians. Jerusalem had many Christians in that city at the time, but shortly before all of this went down, they ran away. They fled the city. And the reason they fled the city is because they looked at Luke 21... And the Olivet Discourse, through the eyes of Jesus, predicting events that they would see in their time, and they needed to respond to those events in real time. The reason that all the Christians ran away and fled and escaped all of this terror was because of their interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. That's why I said that the interpretation I'll be presenting to you this morning is as old as 66 AD. Now let's look at the text and see, from their eyes what Jesus explained to them. Verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be one left, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? 
and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be all at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated for, by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on in the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, the people who heard this believed that that was fulfilled in 66 to 70 A.D. All of that. And what I'm going to do over the next two, two weeks, this week and next week, 
is walk you through that understanding of this text. Now, the question becomes, in addition, really, the question becomes, well, let's say that's true. Let's say this passage was fulfilled in that generation, as Jesus explicitly said it would be. Well, then what is it doing in our Bibles? What is it for? What is this passage trying to tell us if it's not about the future? Now, this will be a good time to pause and say, I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't prescribe, doesn't tell us that Jesus will return physically to rule upon the new heavens and new earth. I'm not saying that at all. I believe that with all my heart. I believe the Bible teaches that. I don't believe this text teaches that. So what does this text teach? How do we interpret this the way that those folks did back in 66 to 70 AD? How do we use this the way that God intends for us to use this? Well, if this text is primarily a warning to the early Christians to pay attention to the biggest thing in their world falling apart, then its usefulness to us would have the same point of application. There are some practical applications that Jesus makes here. It's incredible the number of uh, faces like I'm seeing right now, like I'm like I'm selling the bridge, like I'm selling the Brooklyn Bridge to you. Uh, that's good. That's good. Uh, if what Jesus is if what Jesus is saying right now to these folks is simply this, this is going to happen, and I want to give you a bunch of explicit, practical ways to escape this terrible tribulation, then that's for them, right? We could not practically run from Judea to the mountains. But if you look at the text closely, what you'll actually see is that, yes, there are some practical, logistical things that Jesus gives for the disciples to do. But more than that, he's concerned about their heart. And especially their heart as they watch their world fall apart. Do you think it's possible that you may witness the collapse of a great civilization in your lifetime? Do you think it's possible that you may witness riots in the streets and nations warring against nations? Do you think it's possible that you may live in such a time similar to the time in which these disciples heard these words? And if you think it's possible... Do you think it's possible that you will be shaken to your very core when it really, really goes down? Jesus is concerned that that's going to happen to these disciples. He's concerned that as they watch this, not only for their physical safety, but for their spiritual safety, that they are not led astray, that they are not wrongfully terrified, that they are not overly discouraged. And so I believe, I would, have, I would have preached this no matter what times we lived in, but I believe pastorally it would be helpful for us to spend two weeks doing some prepping of our hearts. Of our hearts. Prepping of our hearts for the possibility that the thing that's too big to fail, fails. Prepping for our hearts the possibility that this doesn't all just continue in perpetuity. That judgment is real. That rejecting Jesus has consequences at a cultural level. And so the first thing I think we could talk about as we're looking at this passage is simply this. Why do we keep falling for the too big to fail thing when all the things that are too big to fall fail keep falling? 
Going all the way back to the garden, we have an incredible capacity for self-deception when it comes to the allure of being too big to fail. Satan told Adam and Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God, too big to fail. And the consequences of that sin quickly show up in a town called Babel, where a group of people wanted to establish themselves in perpetuity, to be too big to fail. You see, if we could look just through Scripture, we'd see dozens and dozens of examples of things that were really big and really impressive and looked like they could never end. And we see literally with God's sovereign decree, a nation, a kingdom, a civilization crumble like a house of cards before the word of the Lord. We shouldn't be seduced by the idea that anything is too big to fail. And believing that all of this will crumble if we don't follow Christ is not the stuff of kooks and militias in Idaho. It's just a simple reading of the history that God has prepared for us in His Word. When people follow Jesus, they do okay. And when they don't follow Jesus, when they reject Jesus, and they build a culture around the rejection of Jesus, they don't last very long. And in the midst of all those cultures, or many of them anyway, are people that God has chosen before the foundation of the world to be His. And He is concerned that we act a certain way while everyone else around us is losing their heads. And that's what Jesus is dealing with. That's the introduction of this subject. The disciples are all country boys. Have you ever... I, I don't think that I live in the city. I guess I do. When I have family that comes from the country, I realize I live in the city. Because they come in and they see the big overpasses and the turnstiles. And we go to Houlihan's and they think it's the fanciest place ever. And they have to be explained what flatbread is. It's overpriced pizza, Mom. Well, the disciples were country boys. They didn't walk around Jerusalem every day. They didn't see the temple every day. And so what we see in this text is that these disciples are kind of impressed. Verse 5, And while some, some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, Jesus responds. Jesus is responding to them being overly impressed by just saying, Guys, this too big to fail thing isn't long for this world. This thing which looks inevitably permanent will soon crumble to the point where you will not see one stone upon another. Jesus is concerned this morning that you and I take a similar view of the world in which we live, of everything in which we're trusting, of every piece of dirt that we put our foot on, that we understand that none of it is too big to fail. All of it is a house of cards apart from Christ. Christ. The truth is, it's hard to imagine, but it seems pretty clear throughout Scripture that no matter how faithful you are, no matter how theologically robust you are, when the big thing falls, we all jump. We're all sent reeling when the big thing falls. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is using cosmic terminology to describe a big thing falling down. The big thing being Jerusalem, the temple, honestly, Israel. And he's saying that when these sorts of things happen, they're so big 
so shocking and startling that the only way we can describe them is by using cosmic terminology. And so in verse 25 through 28, he says, And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distresses of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. People fanning with fear and with foreboding of what is coming in the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, if you weren't aware of the Old Testament imagery at play in this passage, or you had a bias against the Old Testament, or you weren't aware that Jesus says later, all these things will take place before this generation shall pass. If you had the idea of Jesus' return in your head already, you would read this passage and you would think this is describing the physical return of Jesus. But I don't think that's the case. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's citing a kind of language used in the Old Testament to describe a civilization falling. You see, when these huge, enormous historical events happened in the Old Testament, they would go to this metaphorically cosmic language to describe this thing that was so big and so traumatic that that it was beyond words. So one commentator says, uh, the statements in 1310, he's talking about Matthew, the same passage, about the heavenly bodies no longer functioning, they figuratively describe the total turnaround of the political structure of the Near East, the same would be true of the, tr- of the heavens trembling and earth shaking, figures of speech suggesting all-encompassing destruction. So in Ezekiel, God says this when he's describing uh, the coming destruction of Egypt. He says, I will cover the heaven and make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. And all the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over thee, and set darkness upon the land, and I shall make the land of Egypt desolate. Did, did, did the stars actually fall from the sky? Was the, was, the, was the moon covered? It was actually, this is language describing a massive upheaval at a cosmic scale. In Isaiah 34, as the, as the Edomites are judged, it says this, All the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, and all their hosts will also wither away as the leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom. Another commentator says, When Israel was judged or when Babylon was subdued or when Idumea or Egypt were destroyed, it was not the literal sun, moon, and stars that were darkened. The literal stars of heaven did not fall from the skies, and the literal constellations were not dissolved or rolled up as a scroll. These are figurative expressions, clearly presented in symbolic manner to categorize the destruction befalling nations and earthly powers. Jesus actually uses this terminology when he faces Caiaphas, the high priest. He says to Caiaphas, you... From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He says that to Caiaphas. You will see this. Did Caiaphas experience, did Caiaphas see 
a literal Jesus on the clouds. No, these are declarations of Jesus' authority and power over all things. Now, as I said at the beginning of this passage, or at the beginning of this sermon, if you don't know about this interpretation, or you do and you just don't believe it, that's fine. But the message that comes through is this. When this city, when this civilization in which we call our home falls, it will be profoundly devastating to everyone involved. To the point where we won't have words to describe it. We will use terms like, the world has fallen. Our whole world has been turned upside down. We will be searching for terms to describe how terrible it all feels when this thing which was too big to fail fails. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. And if you disagree that that's what Jesus is saying here, you surely wouldn't disagree that that's exactly what it will be like and what it was like when God's judgment is unleashed on a culture. So, Jesus is not suggesting that Caiaphas will witness the end of space-time. He's not saying that Caiaphas will look out a window and observe a human figure flying downward on a cloud. He's saying that Caiaphas will see, through the judgment of, of Jerusalem, Caiaphas will see that Jesus is king. That Jesus is the cosmic king. That he's the ruler of the heavenly bodies. Language that appears also in the book of Ephesians. So Jesus is saying that when this goes down, it is going to be profoundly disturbing. You know, I thought this morning as I was praying about this, it's one thing to be a 80-year-old man who chain-smoked all of his life while working in an asbestos factory to be told you have lung cancer, right? And it's another thing to be a 40-year-old who eats really well, doesn't smoke, and exercises faithfully to be told you have lung cancer. They're both painful, but one of them is pretty expected, No? Friends, if we look to Jesus as the center of everything, then we would surely say that the nation in which we live is far more like the 80-year-old man who'd been chain-smoking in an asbestos factory. We have it coming. We just do. And to prepare our hearts or our children's hearts for the events that by all means are due, though in, I pray in God's mercy are withheld, is not a trifling or kooky thing. It's a big deal because it will devastate us more than we realize when it happens. So that's the first point Jesus is, I think, making through this text. Be prepared when big things that are too big to fail, fail. Everyone will freak out. Don't. Try not to. Try to remember who's in charge. Number two, if Christ is not central to fill in the blank, then it is a house of cards. If Christ is not central to fill in the blank, it is a house of cards. 
It doesn't matter how strong it is. It doesn't matter how well prepared it's been. It doesn't matter how well resourced it's been. It doesn't matter how big the armies are or the weapons that that army has. If Christ is not the centerpiece of fill in the blank, it is a house of cards and it will fall. If any group of people ever had the, 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 ever could succumb to the temptation of saying we're special, it would have been the Jews in Jerusalem during this time. In fact, 30 years after Jesus predicts this and the siege is taking place, the Romans don't want to destroy the city and they send in a Hellenistic Jew named Josephus, who is a historian that we get many of these accounts from, they send him in to negotiate with the zealots inside the city saying, please just surrender. We will take your city, but we won't have to kill you. Please just surrender. And the leader of the zealots at the time says, there is no way you can take this city because this is God's city. And Josephus said very interestingly, he wasn't a Christian. He got a piece of it right. He said, this isn't God's city anymore because you're not offering sacrifices. See, they'd stopped offering sacrifices when the siege took place. When, what, how, where are they going to you know, get the sacrifices? So Josephus makes the argument, no, 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 this isn't God's city anymore because you've, you're not offering sacrifices anymore. He was partially correct. This was desolate because they had failed to recognize 30 years prior the lamb that had taken away the sins of the world. In Luke 19, this is way back, we were reading through Luke 19 together. Jesus predicts this. He says in Luke 19, Would that you, he's weeping over Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem and he's saying, if you only understood that by rejecting me, you are rejecting your very life, your very future, your very hope, your very security. By rejecting me, you are rejecting everything. If Jesus isn't the center of whatever you have, then whatever you have is a house of cards. Titus, the general who oversaw the siege of Jerusalem, refused to accept a, a wreath of victory because in his mind, he was merely an instrument of God's wrath, though he did not know how to precisely explain it. It was the sense as he was conquering this city that it was God's providence that he would bring this city down to judgment. In Matthew 23, Jesus pronounced judgment over Jerusalem. This happens immediately before the 21, Luke 21, where we're at. Jesus says this, Your fathers killed all the holy men in the past. And now as a means of, um, this is my paraphrase, now as a means of filling up the judgment you were due, I'm going to send you more holy men, more holy prophets. And this is the direct quote from Jesus. Some of you will kill and crucify, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah and Barakiah, 
whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is left to you. It isn't my house anymore. I'm leaving. God is leaving the temple. And when I leave, it's only a matter of time. Friends, you're not in charge of Jerusalem, but you're maybe in charge of a bank account or a marriage or a job or a house or a home. Whatever the Lord has given you to steward, hear me clearly this morning. If Jesus is not the center of it, it will not stand. And when it falls, you will probably be like the rest of us would be and say, well, where did that come from? How did that happen? Because Jesus is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. Jesus is the foundation that keeps everything together. Now, this is all extremely tough stuff. But we must remember that in every proclamation, this is, this is, we get this all the way from, from Romans 9 and Romans 10, every proclamation of judgment that Jesus issues is meant to bring Him glory and, and, and ultimately His believers good. What we need to understand is that when hearing God's judgments over those who've rejected Jesus, we get the sort of carbon copy negative of God's blessings for those who accept Jesus. So when you reject Jesus, your whole life's a house of cards. It's all just waiting to fall apart. When Jesus isn't the center of, of your marriage or Jesus isn't the center of your job, it'll, it, it really is just a matter of time. But the flip side promise to that is when Jesus is the centerpiece, you're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The flip side promise is, is that blessed are all those who take refuge in him you will by no means be ashamed for putting your hope in Jesus, for listening to Jesus, for trusting Jesus, for obeying Jesus. You will by no means be put to shame for taking a radical step in putting Jesus back into the center of your marriage or the center of your home or the center of whatever we're talking about right now, the center of fill in the blank. You will not be disappointed by trusting in Jesus. It's a sure thing. And that's because... There is only one thing too big to fail. And that's Jesus Christ. There's only one thing too big to fail. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 34, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. It is so easy to be deluded into believing that something in this world apart from Jesus is worth pursuing. It's so easy to be deluded into pursuing dissipations. It's so easy to be drunk on what this world has to offer. But understand, Jesus makes one simple promise in our text. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You know, in 2008, the housing crisis uh, just rocked our economy in a, probably a more profound way than anybody really talked about. A few years later, uh, a writer named Michael Kaplan drew parallels between the U.S. economy and the Titanic, and he said this, The ship's designers made the Titanic immune to collision with any existing vessel, but had forgotten that nature puts far more massive objects in the ocean. They devised powerful new machines for installing the three and a half million rivets that held the structure together, but they did not know how freezing temperatures could make those rivets brittle. They installed Marconi's Marconi's new invention, radio, but had no protocols to use it, so that as the warnings of icebergs came from other ships, the lines on the Titanic were congested with people calling rich friends back in Europe to say, hey, I'm on the Titanic. They fitted more than the legally required number of lifeboats, but had not considered that the legal requirement accommodated less of this particular ship's company. Their capacity to plan, listen, their capacity to plan had not expanded to their capacity to build. As designers and financiers, they opened a new era. But as managers and navigators and sailors, they were still accepting the unknown risks of the age of sail. Every risk, every project risks its iceberg. Nothing is too big to fail. Instead, the bigger it is, the more insidious and thus devastating its modes of failure must be. Nothing is too big to fail. Instead, the bigger it is, the more insidious and thus devastating its modes of failure must be. Friends, we live in a, we live in a world that makes the Titanic look like a mud pie, like a little thing you play with in your bathtub. We live in a world that is begging for us to be impressed by it because it sure does look impressive. We live in a civilization that is so big that if it fell, it would send shock waves, not only inward, but outward into history. You decide if all that you see is built on Christ. You decide if the foundation of all this is Jesus. If it's not, then it is not too big to fail. If Jesus isn't the centerpiece of this world, then this world is a house of cards. And in hearing these sober warnings from Jesus in Luke 21, we should hear the sober warnings of someone who loves us very much and doesn't want us to lose it when really painful, scary things happen but to look to the one who is bigger than all those things and say, I'm so glad I live in a kingdom, that I'm a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's pray.